you're just an idea person if you keep them all here on the page and you're not an entrepreneur, the true risk taker until you take that first step, sell a thousand units, figure out how to put a supply chain together, get a product in hand, get a barcode, get a nutritional fact panel, get a command to agree to do a limited run. Like that's a real arduous process and puzzle to put together, but it can be done. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm happy to have the founder of a brand that I actually really love on the podcast today and have had lots of good experience with. So I want to welcome Matt Weiss, who's the founder and CEO of Rind Snacks. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, Matt. Thanks so much, Christy. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's awesome to have you. So why don't we start with a little bit of background on Rind? How did you start it? And maybe even a little bit of background on what your path was to get to being a founder of a a brand in the space. I'd be happy to. Rind is a labor of love. I've been at it for about five years. My path to a CPG entrepreneur was windy at best. I think it's true of most folks in, in the food space. I wasn't a chef. I had no food training. I could make a mean scrambled eggs and PB and J and that was about it. But I had a figure in my life who loomed very large. It was my great grandmother who was a real source of inspiration. She was like a foodie before kale was cool, as I like to say. She had a health food store in the 1920s and 30s. It was called Helen Seitner's Stay Well Health Shop. And the lessons I learned from her, she lived to almost 100 and was just like the vitality that she possessed, even into her 90s, where she would do sit-ups and go for walks and talk about yoga. I mean, she was like a disciple of of Jack LaLanne, if you remember that name. I I do remember that name, actually. Right? The ultimate early natural foodies, juicers and everything. So she used to talk a lot about the power of the peel and a whole foods philosophy, not the retailer, but the notion of roots, rinds, seeds, and stems, all of the, using all of the fruit or veg to capture both the nutrients therein, to minimize food waste, and to stretch your food budget. I think she grew up at a time as a product of the Great Depression where it would have been a sin to peel away an apple if you're making an apple pie, for example, and discard that both from a nutrition standpoint, a food waste standpoint. So, Long way of saying, Rind has been an an homage to her in many ways. I think she would have been a huge fan if she had lived to see it. But every time I'm growing this business and my my focus is distracted by one thing or another, I sort of hone in on the wisdom and the lessons I learned from great-grandma Helen. And that's really what started me on this journey. Practically speaking, I was in a finance career for 20 years that I loved. And most people don't stay at jobs for 20 years anymore. I didn't expect my first job out of school to be the start of a career, 
but I learned so much. It was an old school mutual fund that put such a focus on founders as it did on the businesses themselves. And that resonated deeply with me. And, and there's been so many lessons I've taken from that experience as I've built Rind. Finance, fruit snacks, that's where I am today. That's really cool path. Talk about the decision for you. Like, What was the point where you said, okay, ready for something completely different? And I would imagine a little scary or intimidating on some level. Beyond, uh, <laughs> there were, you know, this decision to launch Rind and then to take it from a side hustle, which it was for the first two years, to my full time effort and therefore leaving a life of stability that I knew for one that was completely invisible and unwritten. And I had to shape it and, you know, make a totally new life wasn't just a decision I was making for myself. I started the company in my early 40s such that I was doing this with buy-in from my wife that was necessary. She's an attorney by training. who's She's very practical and grounded where I am idealistic and blindly optimistic. And my three kids. And honestly, what became so, made the decision easier and easier was that my wife, who is usually one to pump the brakes and say, this is a really risky endeavor. When she started to come around and join me at some of the early food shows or demos along with the kids and saw the real way this product and the concept of the power in the peel resonated with consumers. And she said, you know what? You got to do this. That really was a moment where I, I talk about this unique paradox where sometimes the riskier decision is staying safe and the more obvious and, and safe decision is taking the risk. And the brand had gotten to a point where it was very exciting. There was traction in the market. And if I didn't take my shot at doing this, I would have regretted it, I fear, for a long time. So instead, we got some great investment partners behind us, put together an awesome early team, and we hit the ground running, but we had those first two years where I was living in both worlds. And that helped a lot because we got the business to a certain point where it made jumping off into the abyss a little more comfortable, if that's possible. So you talk about it being the safe bet, even though you're talking about it as an abyss. So like, how did you sort of rationalize in your head that that was the safe thing to do? Yeah, it's counterintuitive. I think what you have to realize, though, is there was growth that I was experiencing. And it wasn't just in the business, it was personal growth. And I think so many people go through life and we're all super busy, but you kind of know your lane and you have your head down and you have your network and you have your circle of friends. And the moment I pushed myself out of that comfort zone by this completely new venture in a new category as a first time entrepreneur, the personal growth and the satisfaction fulfillment I started to enjoy from that was so bright. And learning is like foundational. It's what gets people excited. You learn at any age, you reinvent at any age. And that felt like my world was so broadened and enriched by what I was doing, even though it was scary and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was connecting with new people and learning new skills that made it incredibly professionally fulfilling. And I just knew I wanted more of that. And that 
through experience alone, you'll get better at something. And you'll, if you have conviction in your ideas and in the support network around you, you really can do anything and start anything. And it took some blind optimism <laughs> and faith, but that is where it started to feel like I have something here. And it was, it was only after really being battle tested in the market, learning how to sell and price product for the first time, and really take everything I had learned from the theoretical corporate world of evaluating businesses, but as a third party to actually living it, where I recognized I didn't have these skills and I needed to experiencing them by just doing them. You talk about blind optimism twice, and I think it's a really interesting term, and I love it because I feel the same way. But so many people, I'm sure at points in time, you had people saying, what are you doing? Like, are you crazy? Like you had something that was so steady and now you're doing something you have no idea. How did you deal with that in your head and also like outwardly? Yeah, I got a lot of that. Sometimes I still do. I think it does come back to, are you growing and learning in whatever you're doing? You could have the most interesting job in the world, but if you don't feel professionally fulfilled or if you're not walking out of there with new insights every day or every week that fire you up and challenge you, then you're stagnating. And new things and building new neural networks and skills are what really gets everything firing. And you kind of do have to create your own luck that way, but it's very energizing. And people are motivated by a whole host of different things and people are wired differently. But my risk appetite actually has gone up as I've gotten older and not grown quieter, as I'm sure it does for most people when life and milestones get in the way. I actually felt like, you know what? I have a lot of time left and I don't have to have it all figured out. And I hate the idea that you have to have it all figured out, especially when you're 20 years old and on the cusp of graduating college, because that is the last moment in time when you should have it figured out. And so many people take on, you know, student debt or loans for a career that they feel they need to go into. But I don't know that anyone, when they're 20 years old, is saying to themselves, I really want to be a litigator. I want to do corporate litigation or I want to do contract law. I'm nothing against that. But I think most people need to be exposed to lots of different things. And I feel like that journey happens at all decades. That's why I didn't, I didn't want to sleepwalk into a career of finance or law or whatever it is without trying out a whole bunch of new things. Because I think I have a lot more to contribute than just one specific skill. I love that. And I think it's so interesting for people to hear because you do feel pressure. I mean, when you're in your 20s, when you're in college and coming out of it to know what it was all about and what you're supposed to be doing for the rest of your life. And then you get to another point in time and you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing now. Like, is that what I was supposed to do? Or is there 25 other things I could have done? And why didn't someone expose me to that? So I think it's really interesting to have the sort of, I guess, stomach for it, right? Because it is, right? You could just go on and be completely comfortable and fine. Or you could do things that are really challenging and look at them the way you are, which is really also exciting. And I think that's a really good, smart, almost necessary attitude for an entrepreneur in a way. Yeah. I think one thing that crystallized it for me was, and I'm sure lots of parents in 
traditional service oriented jobs get this question, which is your kids look at you and sort of say, what do you do all day? Like, what are you, you know, and coming home and being like, well, I had these meetings and then I had some emails and then I wrote up a report and then I opened Microsoft Excel. You know, it was very like my kids couldn't appreciate or grasp what I was doing. And I started to think, well, am I even grasping what I'm doing all day? What I know I love is that childlike curiosity of building, creating, I guess you call it branding to some degree, but really shaping and storytelling that has always been sort of a spark for me. And I would keep a notebook full of ideas, most of them in the snacking space. So who doesn't enjoy snacking? And the notebook just got more and more full. And I just started to tell myself, like, you're just an idea person if you keep them all here on the page. And you're not an entrepreneur, the true risk taker, until you take that first step, sell a thousand units, figure out how to put a supply chain together, get a product in hand, get a barcode, get a nutritional fact panel, get a command to agree to do a limited run. Like, that's a real arduous process and puzzle to put together but it can be done. And a moment I sort of said, there are practical steps that you got to break down here that will separate you from, I think most other people who do keep those ideas in a notebook and say, someone else is doing this, or I don't have the time, or there's no way I can ever build, get a product to market. So talk about the challenges. There must have been a lot and what, or, or maybe even what you're facing right now. So Rind is a great brand. You've been around for a few years. Not You're certainly not, not for a very long time. And part of that was COVID. So that was an interesting challenge, I'm sure. But now we're sort of beyond that to some degree. People are going back to the grocery stores. What are your biggest challenges right now? Over the last six to nine months, it's really been staying in stock. I think we have been very, very focused as much on the sales side as we have on the operation side of having the infrastructure in place to support the demand that we're seeing and the seeds that we're planting for sales are, you know, prop future product pipeline back to the optimism thing. Like we expect to, to grow and win in the marketplace. We have to earn that right every day. But if, at the end of the day, we have trouble scaling products that have proper unit economics and can be abundant and resource available to support the demand we think is, is there for the taking, then what's the point? You know, you're, you're building a brand, not a business at that point. And we knew even before the pendulum has swung back to, oh, you've got to get to cash flow break even. And it's like, well, the whole point of this is you to build a healthy brand, you have to have a healthy business underlying it. And when you do that right, you can credibly stretch your brand to adjacent categories of the store and build the platform that makes you multidimensional and not just a single product on shelf in just the world of, say, dried fruit. And as you can gather, our vision, our ambition is much bigger than just fruit snacks. But the biggest challenge of which has been getting the supply chain to a point of real scale, such that we have the people in place, the processes in place, and the supply of raw material in place to handle key account growth. And you're right, we have been in market a few years. So we're not the new kid on the block, but we are by no means established. And so the white space is we are going from 
some wonderful natural independent accounts like Whole Foods and Wegmans and the Fresh Market that have been foundational to our growth. And now we're rolling out into all Kroger's nationally. And we're going into our first Costco region and we're doing a test with Target. And these are unbelievably exciting opportunities that you get one shot on goal. That's right. And it's a wonderful, unique moment in time for small emerging brands who make the conscious decision to be aggressively in stock is how I'll term it, to actually take market share from giants who the business unit you might be competing against might not be their primary focus. It might not have the resources devoted to it. It might have a longer supply chain where you can be more nimble and flexible. So if you can be super valuable to big retail partners by staying in stock and being on time and in full, you might be going into an account with one or two SKUs, but your incumbents might have 10 SKUs or 15 SKUs. And all those facings are potential white space opportunities. That's so interesting. I'm curious about your, I mean, I've talked with almost everyone recently about supply chain and what a nightmare it's become. And But yours is even different because you're talking about raw materials that have to do with weather and farming and all of that stuff. So you have like an an added challenge on top of what's an already challenging time from a supply chain perspective. How do you deal with that stuff? Is that easy? Is that harder? No, nothing's easy. Taming Mother Mother Nature, especially. There's a couple cross currents going on. One is there's been incredibly rapid inflation in lots of inputs Fruit, believe it or not, has not seen the same sort of degree or magnitude of inflation because it was already at a higher starting point. It wasn't corn or wheat or grain, some of which has doubled or tripled. Fruit has gone up, but what has gone up the most is anything sort of energy related, anything involving fuel inputs, whatever. So our raw material has been relatively in a band that is manageable, but What has been important about our supply chain is getting consistent supply of the fruit. So it's less about managing around the pricing of it and finding and identifying world-class suppliers of fruit and having selecting fruits and blends that the ingredient base is abundant and is accessible and therefore there is a big market for what we're purchasing, which are what are called seconds, right? Essentially processing grade fruit that has been rescued or has cosmetic imperfections that could go to waste. And there's certain fruits that have bigger, longer growing seasons where the product is available, whether it's citrus, whether it's apples. Stone fruit is tougher because the window of growing season is shorter. So most of that product ends up going straight to grocery or frozen and very little is available at scale for snacks. So you have, we have to be smart and we can't just say, oh, well, these are the fruits we really want to do because, you know, this is unique and exotic. If we're going to select a unique fruit, it has to be paired in a blend with fruits that are abundant and scalable so that the whole process can work together in a way that it is a product we can grow with and make money doing. So interesting and must be very, especially hard to manage. What are some of the blends? Talk about the blends. I know you have a coconut watermelon one. Is that, uh, is that the same kind of thought process that you just described or? 
Yeah, it is actually. That's a good example called Coco Melon. Happens to share a name with, I think, the most like widely watched children's YouTube channel, the same name. Uh, very different product. But if you know or any of your listeners know the song Baby Shark, which is oh, seared, yes. into, seared into my brain, not for good reasons, is uh, that's a co- another Coco Melon. In any event, our Coco Melon blend is two ingredients organic coconut unsweetened and watermelon, dried watermelon, and it's dynamite. It's a very cool combination. Coconut is readily available. You can find it. Therefore, it was a good ingredient to pair something off of. It adds some unique heartiness and nuttiness and the good fats, obviously. And it is really well balanced by a super sweet melon-based snack. And so pairing those two is a perfect example of what we're talking about, where you can still, you're not using filler fruits by any stretch, but you're really bringing a really unique flavor combination that's kind of like a pina colada, but with watermelon instead of pineapple in a bag that's balanced, great texture, and also is this product that's scalable. What we really try to do is... The category of dried fruit happens to be high private label. There's always a lot of store brands. It really is. And we wanted to make sure we had to be different. We had to not only have the skin of the fruit, the rind, be our point of difference, but our choice of fruits be our point of difference. And it's why, for example, we don't have a mango blend or just a a straight mango product because... I don't think we had anything truly unique or differentiated to say if we were to launch a mango only product, despite that being a very big business. I wanted to make sure when we came to market, we did so with a really unique voice. And so Orchard Blend, which is my favorite, I'll hold it up. But this is our original skew, which is three ingredients as well. It's peach, apple, and persimmon. And Uh, unbelievable blend. The persimmon is the rock star. It's one of the best fruits no one's heard of. And it really is not, you don't find it anywhere in the fruit snack category. And you might find apples, surely you will. Peaches, maybe a little bit, but you'll never find persimmons, nor will you find it in this combination. That is what makes us rind, is the skin and the functional benefits in the peel combined with the food waste mitigation, plus unique fruits that are aligned with consumer preferences and tastes is how we win. And that's sort of the the three-pronged approach that we have in evaluating any new products, you know, any extensions, things like that. I have a question for you that I want to go back to something you said. So you've obviously raised some capital, you said more than once at this point? Yeah, we had a... We did a seed round and then we had a series A a year ago. Okay. And you just talked a little bit about it's back to the cash flow positive. Talk about that a little bit because I think there has been a real shift in fundraising and how you go about it and what you need to do and think about it. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about, about that? Sure. I'd say as a starting point, it, it's, it was helpful for me to come from a finance background to be navigating an environment like you know, we're living through today where capital isn't as flowing as, as, you know, wildly as it was, and it's not as cheap anymore. And investors are looking through different lenses than they were before. Higher hurdle rates. What is the business? What are the business economics that allow this to be bigger than just a brand? And so it helped to have that 
you know, that underpinning. And it, my brother-in-law, who's my partner in the business, also came from the same world. And we're both, you know, later stage in our lives. We're not in our 20s, we're in our 40s. So we were always geared toward you build this brand by building a strong business. And you have the opportunity to platform the brand only by virtue of having a healthy business, meaning products that make money. They don't all have to make the same margin, but they have to be constructed in a way that there is more than a path. You have to start out that way. And I think that's just common sense. I don't, you know, yes, the pendulum will always swing, but there were probably a lot of brands that saw funding that were strictly top line growth stories and the tide goes out. And this is part of cycles and the strong get stronger, you know, and I do think this moment in time will thin out a lot of brands that probably didn't have the right mindset or the foundation around how are we going to turn this into a business? Yes, Mm -hmm. we have a beautiful product and we have exciting, you know, we have exciting proof of concept, but you can have proof of concept and a terrible business model. Yes. Right. If you're losing money on every sale or if you're only focused on a channel that's bleeding and you're subject to changes in iOS compatibility, then it calls into question everything you're doing. So finding a way, and this goes back to both the unit economics of a product, but more about the all weather nature of your product positioning, you know, within snacking, which is a big, huge category. There's pockets of growth everywhere. And what always felt right to me was the notion of being novel yet familiar. And you had to be in the middle of those two. If you were overly novel and you came out with a Mandarin orange keto macaron, it's niche. It's it's overly niche. It's a fad. Yep. Right. Yep. And it speaks to like a very small addressable market. And if you come out with a better for you raisin, or whatever, like a functional reason, you're a commodity. It doesn't have any excitement to it. But the intersection of novel, but doesn't require tremendous education is where we live within the fruit snack world. We're fruit snacks. You can explain it in a sentence. We keep the skin on to maximize nutrition, minimize waste, and we use unique fruits, full stop. I get it. And you get a lot of people who relate the same story of my great grandmother to bring it full circle of someone in their lives that reminded them about never letting the best part go to waste, whether it's keeping the skin on a sweet potato or the skin on apples and oranges and kiwis. People get it, but it's sort of like, oh, that's a new way at it. I hadn't tried that before. Or I've had an orange on the end of my craft cocktail, but I never thought to snack on it. Maybe I will. Yep. That's so interesting. You mentioned a little bit or hinted at innovation and where you wanted to take the brand. Is there anything in the pipeline that you want to talk about? Sure. It's no shortage of ideas. We focus on the edge of the fruit. It is our North Star. So we like to take snacking to the edge with what we are working on next. And the chewy dried fruit category where we continue to bring new blends and new innovation has tremendous opportunity in front of it. But what we're really excited about and what's launching to market is a line of thin cut, crispy fruit chips that are merchandised more in the salty snack set than in the traditional fruit or bulk set. And we think there's a shift happening among taste profiles toward tangy and bittersweet and away from 
cloyingly sweet, super sweet. And we think, I like to say what makes a margarita so enjoyable is the friendship between citrus and salt. And you get a bitterness, a tanginess, a sweetness, maybe some heat if you match it with chili and that it's new and it's harmony. And I think of an entire generation of snackers coming of age by enjoying hot sauce or sriracha on everything that what we are bringing to market, if you, if you haven't gathered already, will be a chili lime orange chip. That oh, is awesome. a crunchy margarita, if you will, where you have uh, the interplay of Himalayan pink sea salt, the functional health benefits of crispy oranges, a healthy oil, like an avocado oil, just to adhere the spices. And then the bold flavor of like a tagine spice seasoning that will stand up to dips. I mean, dipping an orange chip in guacamole may sound crazy now, but we think it's a big idea and we think it amps up the craveability, the irresistible factor, if you will, of an already great snack. That's fantastic. And you sold me already. So I want to be first in line to try it. And I think this is so funny. I don't know how it's going to go, but I feel like someone has to make something you can dip in guacamole besides chips, because what if you don't want to eat chips? I don't even really like tortilla chips, but there's no alternative. So I love that you're even thinking about that. That's really cool. That's fantastic. I agree. And when I try to give my kids an alternative and I'm like, here are these carrot sticks, here are some celery stock. They're like, this ain't doing it. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't do it for me. It doesn't do it for me either. But you're right. I think the vast majority of what we love about a tortilla chip is spicy, the the salt and the seasoning and the crunch. Like the crunch is like half of the equation And I think if you can trick your mind and you get the crunch and you get the spice and seasoning, everything else is just a vehicle and it doesn't need to be a fried grain based or starch based or corn or potato based. It could be an orange. And that's the theory. And that's what we've been working really, really hard on. And we're really excited. It's coming soon. What's the timeframe? Hope to have it. We've had indications already from a few exciting retailers who are asking us to get this to market sooner rather than later. We showed it at Expo West. We are looking at getting the, again, back to like, can we produce this at scale to our high specifications? And it's looking like early next year. So early 23, and we already have some early commitments from some great accounts that have raised their hand and said, give us those chili lime orange chips yesterday. I love it. That's fantastic. I want to ask you one more question because we talked a little bit about it and you said, you think a lot of brands err on the side, at least have for a long time of building a brand, but not really a business. Is brand important to you also, or not so much? It's such a wishy-washy answer to say both are important. How I will explain it is the same way I talked about novel and familiar. If you're novel or overly novel, you're niche. And if you're overly familiar, you're a commodity. If you're more brand and sizzle without steak, you don't have as credible or viable a path for longevity and to succeed. Mm -hmm. And if you're overly business focused, you don't have that intangible magic to capture an emotional connection with consumers. So it's both. It's why we took the time at launch to come out with what we think is beautiful packaging Mm -hmm. that 
very quickly tells the story. Our, our brand name and the architecture of our, of our logo and packaging is our value proposition. It's yeah. the rind, it's fruit with benefits. Yeah. So that was brand magic, but the business had to have heft to it and it really had to have substance to it. And the magic, it happens at the intersection of those two. And it's what informs our product portfolio. So for example, while we're coming out with what we think will be a new hero in chili lime orange chips, we also have an awesome apple chips product, which is one ingredient. Apple chips have been around, it's, it's proven ground. We think we make the best apple chip on the market, but that is an important business building skew. The chili lime orange chips are going to be an important brand building skew. And some of our products will fit under a little more under one side of the equation and some will fit under the other, but you need both to capture the, the bigger picture and be a brand that really connects and can endure. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think it's smart. And I think you're right. There were a lot of brands that came out for a while when the money was flowing differently and it was all about the brand. Related to that, I know we're getting close to time and I appreciate your time. So I want to ask you just two more things. Related to brand and how you build that and how you go to market with that, you know, a lot of people in the business were building brands really quickly to sell them. That was the whole point. I want to have this awesome brand. I want to sell it. I want to be out. Yours, I don't know how you actually feel, but I suspect that because you have some real emotional connection to why you did it, there's a little different path for you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I love seeing Rind through my children's eyes. And I am now at that point in this business where, oh, they know what dad does. <laughs> they didn't before, but now they come up with new flavors, they're taste testers. There have been times where they've just broken my heart because they enjoyed everything but the Rind. And they're like, dad, I don't like this part. And I'm like, that's the whole reason for being. But they are seeing them connect with a concrete product or join me, I kid you not, at like a summer kind of farmer's market trade show. It's given them a front row seat to entrepreneurship. That is really what I always, always wanted for them, that they could see you can take an idea that's in your head and create something from just your, your creativity and take it as far as you want to take it. And that you shouldn't be bounded or limited in any way, but but for your creative imagination. So I've loved that. That's been the most gratifying thing, if nothing else, right? And if I had to go back to a regular, normal, safe, stable job tomorrow, I would hope that's been the best lesson is like they can, if they can dream it, they can do it. So for that reason, and because I am in many ways building a family business, my brother-in-law is my business partner. I married his sister. <laughs> 17 years ago. So you can only imagine what our Thanksgivings are like. It's just nonstop fruit snack talk, but we are in this together and we're trying to build something that can last and can endure. But what I will say is you also have to be practical and all we can do is build a brand that matters and create value for the brand, for our investors, for our customers. And if that creates options down the road, we'll consider those, but it is not a means to an end. It is the journey is the gratifying part. And again, seeing it through the eyes of my kids has been the most fun. That's really cool and different than a lot of why a lot of people do this. So that's awesome. I have one more question for you before I let you go. Advice. 
just a couple of things that you've learned along the way that you think people should know, and maybe you can help them avoid some of the pitfalls. Yeah, I think a lot of people are, myself included, are stuck in their own heads and they tell themselves a narrative and it can be very easy to find an excuse that just stifles the risk or stifles the creativity. I don't advise people to take unnecessary risks, but if there's something that gnaws at them that is kind of missing from their work, their professional career, their life, COVID more than anything has exposed this like, wow, you can have a lot of side projects. Like side hustle went from like, you're sneaking out and cheating on your job to like, why don't you have a side hustle? Why don't you have another job? Yes. So it's like, which I love. And I think you got to do the work and the the employer that pays you, you got to do a good job. But I actually think there's real benefit as you grow professionally and, and expand your network and learn new things, you're actually getting better at whatever it was you're doing or whatever yeah. gainfully employs you. So my advice would be get out of your head a little bit. Stop making the excuses of, I don't have the time to do this. It's never been a better time to start a company. And you don't need to raise a ton of friends and family money to do it. At least start to do the research. Mm-hmm. If there's something you like or a concept or in the CPG world, if you love to walk a Whole Foods like I do, you'll see things in the market that are that are missing that you might want to say, why hasn't this been done before? Or why can't I put this on that, <laughs> you know, or mix these flavors? And take that first step of a little bit of research, that's free. And if that sparks the next opening of a new door, that's what sets you on your way. But you have to take a step. So much of this is you're just stuck in your head and you find every excuse. It's easy to just dismiss it. But if it gnaws at you, you got to be true to it. I love that advice. I also love that you said, if you love to walk a Whole Foods, like I love to walk Whole Foods. And I think there are so many people that do. You just wander and explore and discover things there that you have never seen before. And it is really fun. And if I think if you think that's fun, you're right. This might be a place you could be thinking about living your life. It's really Absolutely. interesting. I still love seeing what's new. Me too. Uh, and I think it is a great, you know, anybody that walks those stores and gets enjoyment out of it should realize all of those spectacular brands that they see on the shelf that have an amazing story or that somebody is crushing it or doing this or that. It's like, A, it's been a grind for that successful brand to get to that point yeah. and nothing is easy and B they started at zero. Yeah. Just like you, just like you are. Right. Yeah. And you should think of that when you look at Annie's or Amy's or Siete or Chobani, they had an idea yeah. and they could have easily said, nah, someone else will do this. Or yeah. how, how, why is there a need for a Greek yogurt? Right. Or a better for you, Mac and cheese or a better, Latin inspired tortilla brand. And guess what? The only thing standing in the way from that success and the idea is the entrepreneur willing to put in the work to bring it to fruition. Yeah, that's really cool. Awesome. Well, I wish you so much success. I love Rind and I I really hope that all the things that you want to happen, happen. And I can't wait to try your new stuff. I'm really excited for it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Christy. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.